Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la diritta via era smarita. In the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself within a dark wood where the right way was obscured. When Dante wakes up in the selva oscura, he's completely lost. He has no idea where he's going and he's terrified. One of our most popular pieces is the Leone Medallion, inspired by this first canto, when Dante is confronted by the beast of the lion. The lion comes towards him, so terrifying that even the air around him is trembling with fear. Dante wants to give up. And it's at that point when his guide, Virgil, appears and gives him the strength and says, Dante, what are you doing? You can do this. You've got to be braver. And I made the Leone medallion as a reminder to myself to be courageous when I was first starting the brand. And it's continued to be my talisman ever since, reminding me in those moments of doubt that maybe I am strong enough for the journey. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of my favourite writers and curators, Lou Stoppard. A writer for the Financial Times, The New Yorker, New York Times and Vogue, and previously the editor of Show Studio, where she interviewed the likes of Wolfgang Tillmans and Kanye West, Lou has curated a variety of highly acclaimed photography and fashion exhibitions. These include Mad About the Boy at Fashion Space Gallery, which considered fashion's obsession with youth, North, Fashioning Identity, an exploration of visual representations of the North of England at Open Eye Gallery in Liverpool and then Somerset House in London, and The Hoodie in Rotterdam. 
Her first book, Fashion Together, an exploration of collaboration, was published by Rizzoli in 2017. And her most recent book, Pools, is a beautiful exploration of the swimming pool in photography, which is making me particularly yearn for them at this time in lockdown. But the reason why we are speaking to Lou today is because she also edited the book Shirley Baker for Mac, an anthology of photographs by an underappreciated, underrepresented British female street photographer, who I am so delighted is the artist we will be discussing today. Welcome to the podcast, Lou. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. It's really nice to be able to talk about Shirley's work and any excuse to have a conversation with someone because when it's lockdown, <laughs> speaking with anyone is so exciting. <laughs> Yes, we're going to get lost in an artist's world. I can't wait. So I've been so excited for this episode for so long because I think I must have discovered the work of Shirley Baker at your incredible exhibition North at Somerset House a few years ago. I mean, that exhibition for starters just opened my mind to this burst of creativity that happened, you know, during the 80s and 90s and noughties and the likes of Manchester, Salford, Liverpool and places and introduced me to so many amazing artists and photographers. But then I think I really discovered Shirley's work after reading your incredible profile on her in The New Yorker. And again, it just really opened my eyes to the possibilities of street photography as an art form, but also its ability to capture a changing world. And I just wanted to know more. So just for our listeners who might not be familiar with Shirley Baker's work, please can you kind of describe a Shirley Baker work for us? Absolutely, of course. And it's interesting that you say that you came across her work through the North Exhibition, because that's actually how... I came to better know Shirley's work. So if you said Shirley Baker to someone at the moment, they would probably consider her for a body of work that she made in the 60s and 70s in and around Manchester and Salford. And they're pictures of restless period of life in British living environments. And Shirley got a degree of acclaim around that body of work. She made a lot of pictures sort of around conditions and living conditions. There were lots of pictures of families in and around the streets that they live. She didn't enter people's homes. And it's this period where you see a lot of the typical terraced houses being replaced by more modern apartment blocks. So that was kind of how I knew Shirley's work. And when I was curating that North exhibition, I co-curated it with Adam Murray, who's a brilliant academic. Part of what we were doing with that show, it was bringing together a lot of contemporary work from around the North, particularly sort of a lot of the fashion stuff. And as you mentioned, there was this burst of creativity and we see a lot of photographers making work in and around the North of England. So contemporary names in fashion, like someone like an Alistair McClellan, but also, you know, artists who've made work that's very much inspired by the North. So someone like a Mark Leckie. And what we were doing with that show was bringing together a lot of contemporary photography alongside early documentary photography, street photography. So the earliest works dated back to the 30s, but then we'd have them hung alongside something in the 2000s. So Shirley's work was really interesting within that show because part of what we were trying to do was looking around how this sense of a visual identity of the North has developed. And then what happened was, I think a lot of things in life go this way, but it was actually a moment of luck because it happens that Shirley's daughter, Shirley's no longer alive, Shirley's daughter who looks after the archives lives not far from me. So she's in Golders Green and I'm sort of in... um, Oh, nice. Yeah, super close. So when we made the selection for North, I decided to go pick the prints up myself and I was keen to sort of have a look and we'd kind of already made the selection of what we wanted to include but then I got to her daughter's house and just immediately I caught sight of stuff that to me was 
not what I would have expected a Shirley Baker photograph to look like because I just caught sight of a lot of material and and it was a kind of combination of things that struck me one was the quantity of material there it was immediately evident to me that there were a huge number of prints there and boxes and boxes and boxes and I thought that can't all be these 60s and 70s stuff and then I also caught sight of stuff that just looked very different. Oh, well, so you'd only seen that work that she did on the North of England at that point? Yes, at that point. I mean, I'd seen glimmers of other things because there had been some work that had sort of got out there, but she was definitely known for this body of work from the early 60s through to about 1973. And that work had garnered some degree of acclaim because one thing I did find when I was working on this book is a lot of people were like oh you discovered Shirley and that that isn't the case and what's so interesting to me about Shirley was the breadth of her practice and that's what really struck me when I was in the archive that day but there was a a lot of other work shot in and around the north there was work shot in London there was work shot abroad at the time I was seeing these amazing pictures of people on beaches or in European cities and I was struck by how strong the work was and I immediately felt like Shirley was someone who'd potentially been analysed as if she was interesting because she'd made work around a certain topic. So her work was interesting because it shed light on this sort of restless period of Northern living, when actually I feel like she is a photographer with a significant practice, with a great sense of style. And there is definitely a sense of purpose, which sometimes... I feel there is a a political aspect to her work, which she herself was very aware of and engaged with. And I felt like she was someone who hadn't been properly celebrated. And I was really, really keen to do a book that brought together the breadth of her practice. You know, it's so interesting because I was looking at your book and what I love about it is the fact that you've, you haven't really done it in chronological order. You've kind of placed all these different photographs side by side. And I love the fact that you look at Manchester in the 90s versus the 50s or the 60s. And what I find so fascinating about her work and why I was so drawn to it, there's something so expressive, but also very loyal. She photographs in the same way that she does in the 50s and she does in the 2000s. And I think that's what's incredible is that you can really tell it's the same eye. It's a bit like a portrait painting, never changing their style or something. And I found that so interesting because although they captured such a strong time, they also felt quite timeless in a way. Does no, that make it's really, sense? Yeah, it does. And it's actually really astute, I think, that you observe that there is this sort of line from throughout her work, whether she's making sort of some of her early work through to her later work. So Shirley died in 2014 and she was kind of shooting sort of up until the end. So there is work from the early 2000s. But I think you're right. I think there is a line, whether she's making, you know, a picture on a sort of residential street in Manchester or on a busy shopping street in London in the 80s, which is something she did a lot of, or the south of France when people are on holiday, there is this line. And it is interesting because when I was working on this book, I had to spend quite a lot of time in the archive. And the work hasn't been archived in a way that makes it particularly easy to navigate as a researcher. One thing that was great was that Shirley had left behind a lot of writing and her daughter had kept all of that, which was brilliant. wow, yes. And she wrote a lot of essays about her own work and she they're quite finished because you get a sense of the sort of obsessive nature of her practice and the way that she was always making pictures, but she was also thinking about her pictures a lot. And she writes about the socio-political context of certain bodies of work or the technical experiments that she's trying with certain things. And sort of on that sense of what unites all of her work, there was something that she'd written when she was talking about some of the towns in the south of France where she'd make pictures, and she referred to how they were very picturesque. But then she said that she wanted photographs of the people rather than the place itself. And to me, that was a really important note because I, yeah. it, it kind of yeah. stuck with me when I was thinking about how you look at all of her work as photographs of the people rather than the place itself. She's very interested in 
these quieter moments of life or these emotions that we all feel at different points, like that sense of being left behind or overlooked or that awareness of our own identity, the aging process, aware of how we're viewed in public. She captures these things with a great degree of sort of subtlety and respect and sometimes humor, but never in a way where you feel like she's laughing at her subjects. And wherever she was, she made these very moving, very striking pictures around the human condition. And and, and that was something that I loved about her very much. And that's why I was so keen to organize the book, not chronologically, but have it sort of unite her practice. And there's something really nice, I think, about that, because I don't think you have to be hugely familiar with Shirley's work to be able to draw parallels between different pictures. Yeah, totally. And I think what strikes me about her work is she also is, is quite intimate. Yes, there are certain works where she's looking at a road in France in the 80s or she's looking at a tower block or something, but there is something very intimate the way that she also engages with her subjects as well. And what I found is like, you know, actually people shape the world and that's what makes it so exciting and to capture what Blackpool on holiday looked like in 1970 or what the punks looked like in Camden in the 80s and actually it was these people who made society and I don't don't know I just found it very beautiful and moving basically but I'd love to know what did looking at Shirley's work for the first time make you immediately think about? I think that's one thing that was struck by her ability to question the way that society builds ideas around identity and to me her work relates to a lot of quite modern themes that people are discussing in photography art and around issues of representation you know thinking about ideas around gender ideas around aging and her ability to look at people with a degree of respect and sometimes sympathy but also simultaneously to be quite probing around the way that we perform our identity or the way that we live up to society's expectations of us. So she's highly skilled on aging, the divisions between a girl and a woman, capturing the private worlds of children and the sort of odd things that children can do that can sometimes be quite violent or quite dark. And she captures these in a really interesting way. And also she's great at getting these moments where the mask sort of slips, these moments where a powerful man looks momentarily a bit ridiculous or a woman who's incredibly glamorous and refined suddenly looks a bit despondent. And she herself really thinks of herself as another person on the street. And there isn't this sense of her looking down on her subjects or I don't even think she particularly... That's so true. Yeah, and I think that's what makes the work enjoyable. You know, you said how you really enjoyed going through those pictures and they were sort of enlivening. And that is true because those awkward power balances that can sometimes interrupt our viewing of a picture... I feel don't exist within Shelley's work because she thought so closely about those things. And I think she herself was also, you know, it's very easy to go a bit too far with theories like this, but I think she was probably quite keenly, (laughs) you know, you end up like psychoanalyzing everything, but I think (laughs) she was probably quite keenly aware of what I think it felt like to be overlooked, both just in terms of being a woman moving through public spaces. She would have been less conspicuous than a male photographer And that explains a question which a lot of people ask when they look at her work, when they're like, why is no one acknowledging her? Why aren't they looking at the camera? But also, I think she probably knew the feeling from her writing, you can tell she did. I think she knew the feeling of being overlooked professionally as well. Yeah, totally. There is such an element of people just passing her by. And I love that quote that you included in the essay in The New Yorker by Eamon McCabe, who said, once people in the street trusted her, They ignored her and she was able to take the natural kind of photograph she was after. And I think that naturalism really comes through. And I guess she is 
really just getting to what people were doing in their everyday lives. You know, it didn't matter who you were, whether you were in the mm. south of France or whether you're in Manchester. She captures this intimacy. And in a way, it's almost as though she's there, but she's not yeah. there. There's something so intimate. And like the rawness of it and the fact that she captures these such intimate moments that even just kind of part like, how do you even, I don't, I'm always amazed by some photographers who can have that ability, like that work in Saint-Tropez in France where the woman is just glancing at her mirror. She was clearly just constantly analysing people and watching what they were doing the entire time. But I want to mm. go back to her own life and career because she was born in 1932. Can you tell me about Shirley's upbringing? Yeah, so Shirley, as you said, was born in the 30s. She was born in Kersal in North Salford. And she's from a Jewish family. She's a middle-class family. Her father has a furniture manufacturing business. She is interested in cameras from an early age. So in her writing, I found various accounts. So she refers to playing with a folding camera that her mother had. There's also a correspondence that relates to her and her sister being given cameras around eight, nine or 10. I found some of her sort of school reports and school diaries. And she it's part oh, of the wow. photo. Yeah, it was amazing. I found so much stuff. I mean, when I was in the archive, there was one moment where I was going through boxes and boxes of letters and essays. But then also there was a moment where I found her wedding garter, like in amongst all this correspondence. Wow. So oh my gosh. as someone who is interested in that research process, like it was such a gift to be able to be so hands-on with the material and really feel like you were sort of discovering things. But it was great because it gave me things like an insight into her childhood. So she's interested in photography at school and she thanks a particular teacher in one of her yearbooks for devoting so much time to showing us what could be developed in dark rooms. Um, oh, wow. That's so wonderful. It's so nice. It's really nice to see that sort of side of her. And what is interesting with Shirley is she often refers to herself as a dedicated idler or a female flanner. So this idea that she's sort of wandering around and just snapping pictures. And in some ways, I think that's a really good description for her because it captures the sort of obsessive nature yes. of her work and the fact that she was yeah. constantly making pictures. But there's another sense where it's overly humble because she is actually a very skilled photographer. You know, she did train. She went to study pure photography at Manchester College of Technology. She did different courses yeah. at London Regent Street Polytechnic. She later did stuff at the London College of Printing. And she does work as a photographer, not to the extent that I think she would have liked or that she deserved, but she did sell pictures to different publications at different points, so like The Guardian or The Lady. Wasn't she also like an in-house photographer for the Royal Manchester Children's Hospital? She was. So she makes a lot of pictures within the hospital. But of course, those commissions would have had an impact on yeah. her. But her hospital pictures are really, really beautiful and moving. So I think there is an element to Shirley, which is also, I mean, from a photography fanatic perspective she is really interesting because she's quite sort of promiscuous in her approach to technology she tries a lot of different cameras she tries a lot of different formats I mean she experiments with color printing super early on in 1965 which is yeah. really early yeah but she's not someone who grew up around creative community her husband was a doctor she spent the majority of her time up north she did live in London briefly for a few years and that was because her husband moved there for work and often her work that's made internationally. It's either when she goes on these family holidays to the south of France or it's when her husband has gone traveling for business and she's accompanied yeah. him. And so she's definitely not someone who's hobnobbing in these circles with creative people. But it is really interesting to think about her as sort of relatively separate from those sort of cultural 
gatekeepers. Yeah, it's such an interesting, the way at the end of the essay, you talk about how it is to a certain extent to have had that success during your lifetime. You have had to have had those agents or those gatekeepers or those people who put you in the right contact. But then what I love about her work as well is it's not sceny at all. Most kind of photography that you see, especially, I don't know, 80s punk or something, you know, a lot of it is because someone was in a certain group or something. And that's amazing. But then what I love about it is there is this kind of outsider viewpoint. So as someone who's looking at her work in 2020, you know, having never experienced the North in the 80s or 70s or whatever, mm. actually, it's such an insight, because it's just looking at people for who they are, rather than people's mm. status. No, no one's, no one's named or anything. It's just, mm. it's just wonders. I love the way that, you know, she was referred to an idler or something. Mm. And she would really agree with you on that. Actually, it's really interesting, because she does. <laughs> Good. I, found, I found, I know exactly. Well, done. Um, Actually. well, I found some correspondence between her and certain students which she printed out it was towards the end of her life she did keep copies of everything so she sort of printed out her responses and she talked about some of the people who she admired as photographers so she'll talk about Winogrand or the Farm Security Administration photographers or William Klein or Cartier-Bresson but she talks about how her work is very much her own and you know if she ever tried to emulate someone it would never work so there's a really lovely quote where she said sort of exactly that if I ever tried to imitate the style of another photographer the results were always disappointing and false so this was the scene as I saw it these are my pictures but they are the observations of one person and they tell only a fraction of the story so even that is very humble because she's basically saying with that this is my shot of someone but their story is much more rich and layered than any you know there's a real sensitivity to her awareness and her thinking around representation but there are certain coincidences. So there, I write about this in the essay, but there, there was a moment <laughs> when we were going through the archive and looking at all these pictures. And there was one that is literally the splitting image of a Cartier-Bresson photograph. So Cartier-Bresson image is Sunday on the banks of the River Seine. It's from 1938. And it's the backs of different people sort of picnicking on the River Seine. And then Shirley's made a picture, I think it's in the 1980s, of two relatively large women picnicking and it is so similar. And it's really interesting because maybe Shirley had seen the Cartier-Bresson picture. I doubt if she was deliberately referencing it because she never posed her subjects. So it wasn't like she set up a scenario to resemble this picture. So it's funny to think that she saw such a similar vision as Cartier-Bresson saw at that moment in the 30s. She saw it all those years later. And you can make links with other photographers. So whether it's a Vivian Moore or Helen Levitt, Diane Arbus. But as you identified, there's a fascinating thing with Shirley of her being sort of separate from that and and how you think of her work in dialogue with other photographers when you have to keep in mind that she wasn't within those communities and she does say when she's writing to a student she said I doubt if anyone gets anywhere alone as a result of pure talent or inspiration without being influenced or helped by these arbiters of taste and she puts taste in inverted commas so she's really aware of these gatekeepers yeah no I think it is I mean some of her most iconic work is her street photography you know, during the 1960s to 73. I mm. mean, what's so interesting as well, you've got to think, I didn't also realise that she was Jewish. That's very interesting. So she must have lived through World War II as a child. Mm. But, you know, capturing this 
world post-war you know when we kind of look back at it in hindsight so much changed what I find so powerful about her work is the one is like in the 60s where she's almost capturing a new world but she's also capturing mm, a torn mm. down world so those images where like the houses are being kind of torn down and then mm. immediately replaced with these blocks and is this the life that we're supposed to live I know I, I find it so fascinating to look at works from like the 50s and 60s because it was mm. just before all that kind of 70s housing block kind of came in and that's a fascinating exhibition at the photographer's gallery a few years ago which captured that and just like I don't know what community used to mean and what mm. it means now in a way and why we that could have been Shirley's exhibition yeah, gallery. you're right it is a really interesting period and I mean it is interesting to reflect on that period because basically the act that she's making work sort of in response to is this rent and repairs act which is from 1954 and um, so obviously from 1955 onwards that really takes effect and you see 1.3 million homes demolished. And, and that's that period where you start to see these tower blocks. So it's a huge amount. And you do, you literally see that happening in her pictures. So you'll see this kind of tower block emerging behind these terraced houses. And, or you'll see children playing in kind of rubble. And then behind them, there's a shiny new block emerging. And she writes so beautifully about how she imagines all the scenes that sort of happened around those kitchen tables or in those homes and how easy it was for that to just be swept aside. And I think that work does inform her later practice a lot because I think there is also an interest throughout her work in the march of modernity and the way that customs yeah. change. And you see that yeah. actually a lot in the work she makes in London later around sort of consumer culture. Again, it, it is about change and it's about how our customs and our traditions or even the little worlds we build for ourselves how easily they can be swept aside and forgotten but it's so emotional as well I mean that work from Manchester from 1965 the one with the tower block in the distance and the house actually having lit fire and this guy holding his hand over his face and you can just all this rubble I mean it's so emotional mm. as well they are really emotional. A lot of her pictures are like that. It's hard because I think there's an element because she did make pictures around sort of children playing or women sort of sat on their doorstep. I think there is a, amongst some people, there's potentially a slight misconception that her work was, I think photographers can often be drawn to things that are quite sort of formally wrought. And I think there was this idea that because her work was sort of casual or tender or related to sort of yeah, children and families that it could in some way be quaint and it's actually not that at all like the characters are never simple the themes are often quite dark particularly some of the pictures of children you know they can be quite odd and quite warped she's so skilled at making pictures that can be quite distressing you know she is interested in themes around sort of homelessness she's interested in this idea of uncaring attitudes so sort of people being left behind loneliness which is such a modern theme um, yeah so I think you're right to identify that there's a sort of emotional element to those pictures. And she's very good at capturing things that appear relatable in lots of ways, which is probably something that I like about her pictures, particularly her pictures of women. She captures those moods we all understand, that sense of sort of performing our identity or trying to be something that we're not quite or, you know, trying yeah. to put on a brave face. You know, she's very good at all of these quite commonplace emotions yes they are really relatable because she is just capturing people from all walks of life at any age you know as someone who is even in their 20s I of course don't associate with the images of older people but even the images of children feel slightly nostalgic but then she's in London in the 1980s and this is I mean the height of Thatcherism what do you think she really captured in London amongst Thatcherism in the 1980s 
Well, London's really, really interesting because the pictures she makes in London differ from those northern works from the 60s and 70s because those were sort of domestic environments in the sense that they were residential streets. And in London, she really turns her attention to kind of commercial areas. So she's very interested in places like Oxford Street or Charing Cross Road, Camden High Street, Shaftesbury Avenue. And she's very interested in consumer culture. So she gets really obsessed with people eating on the move. And she called it grazing. And she writes a lot of sort of tracks <laughs> essays around the decline of three meals a day and people sort of eating oh in fast gosh, food restaurants. Oh my gosh, that's so forward thinking. <laughs> it's fascinating. It also really relates again to what we were saying about this sort of ongoing interest that she had in change and modernity and, and changing customs. So whether it's like a new tower block being built to replace old houses or just changes in how people eat and yes. structure their meals throughout the day. So she does have this interest, but she also looks a lot at shops and there's definitely... I mean, this is just from a very aesthetic perspective. There's definitely things that you see recurring throughout Shirley's work. So she definitely has an interest in things like reflections. Often her pictures can be a little bit surreal sometimes because she'll capture using sort of yeah. windows or mirrors or reflections, yeah. visuals that are quite odd. She'll often use signage or wording in a way that's quite interesting. And she really sort of gets to explore this a lot with these London pictures because she really plays with the sort of aspects of shop fronts and whether it's mannequins or signage to make these really amazing pictures but she is really explicit in her intentions with those pictures so something that I found left amongst her writing she wrote I was struck by the opposites I observed on the city streets the squalor and luxury the sadness and joy the brashness and elegance the idleness and purposefulness but most particularly by the loneliness amongst the crowd and she writes that she saw homelessness, poverty, inequality, litter and non-caring attitudes. And of the pictures that she made, she writes that she wanted to capture the spirit of Mrs. Thatcher's time. So, wow. You know, this is someone who was keenly aware of the sort of implications and the agenda of the work she was making. And that is really, really fascinating. That is a line that you can draw again through her practice is she thought a lot about contexts and the way that they shape everything from systems right through to sort of habits of behaviour. Totally. I mean, one of my favourite works of this time is London, England, 1989, which is this incredible shot. It's almost like a sort of crop of this guy who's on a London bus and there's an advert yeah. of the guy with this, it must be like uh, some kind of like, I don't know, drinks can. And he's like a punk with this sort of Mohican and everything. And I think that's so interesting because I think what that work captures is first of all like two different people who are completely different spectrums so the guy who's on the bus looks quite conservative and he's much older well they're facing exactly the same way so yeah. it's this weird thing it's, it is like almost looking at a sort of strange semi-time warp and it, it's also about the divisions between young and old or yes i think they're so prominent yeah totally she, like you're capturing this oppositeness the whole she's time she's so good at that there's another picture which i love which actually does a similar thing which is a young woman in the street who is wearing a sort of tracksuit and she's looking at a mannequin right next oh, to her yes. and the mannequin is quite sort of glamorous well a mannequin anyway is yeah. like idealized femininity and they're kind of encountering each other and to me that does the same thing it's kind of the reality of being a woman as opposed to this sort of projected image of what femininity could be it's again it's that sense of visual clashes and visual coincidences. And one of my gut reactions is often like, why wasn't everyone staring at that moment? Because so much of the stuff that she captures is so visually 
entertaining or arresting that you cannot understand that there wasn't like a huge crowd staring. Yes, totally. I read some of the images are just completely absurd. And the way that she finds these small moments in the middle of people's bustling lives is so fascinating and really shows her acute awareness. But what I love about it, you know, coming back to this particular image with the mannequin is how she is just so great at capturing this such fast paced life. There is just this constant flow of movement. And I love that you say in the essay, Baker saw the way we rush through life, never having enough time, the way we sometimes come to resemble our pastimes, whether our pets or the great giant plants we adore to grow, the way life can at times be cruel and for some luck is slim, fate is harsh, no one stops to help, others go on without us. I mean, that line stuck out to me so much because it just feels so relevant today. I mean, actually even more interesting having just experienced the last few months because for once we were forced to slow down. But the way that she just captures life is just with such momentum and constant changing. Yeah, and that was really inspiring to me because there was a part of it where sometimes at points I couldn't work out what kept her going, like what was in it for her. Because another thing that I found in the archive when working on this book is countless rejection letters. People have written that Shirley was private about her work, but that's actually not the case. You know, she really tries to get work out there. I don't think she was a shouty person, but she definitely tried to get her work seen. She wrote to publishers, she wrote to institutions, she wrote to editors, and she kept every rejection letter. And I think there is something really interesting in that. And it it definitely, I found it inspiring and also quite moving to think about what was in it for her. The fact that she got up, you know, daily and made pictures and she's quite fearless. She's really in amongst the crowd, particularly when she's making pictures around sort of tube stations or busy streets. And I found it really, I mean, obviously I'm so glad that she did do that and she did make all those pictures because it's allowed me to work on an amazing project like this. But I think today we live in a kind of time where people, I think, often don't do things unless there's a short-term payoff. So it's really inspiring to look at someone who made work for decades. She had some degree of payoff. There was that show at the Photographer's Gallery, which happened just at the time she died, which was really sad. Oh, that's so sad. I know, I know. And I sometimes think about that. I'd love for her to have seen this book. And I wonder, like, what would she think? And it's weird to feel like you know someone so well when you actually didn't know them at all. You know, it's a really odd feeling. Do you think it was unusual for... I guess, a woman to be a street photographer during this time? Totally, yeah, totally. I mean, some people have written around Shirley that she was the first British street photographer. I tend to be cautious with things like the first this, the first, because, you you know, it's very hard to do that scholarship thoroughly. And I think there's probably so many women artists who, I mean, this is your whole thing, which you do so well. There's so many women artists whose work has probably been ignored or overlooked. But Shirley was definitely a pioneer to be making pictures like this. And, And that's why it is, to me, sort of laughable that she hasn't had the degree of attention that so many male photographers had. Like, yeah. it was crazy to me that there wasn't a full survey of her work. And that really was the goal for me with doing this book. It was to open this work up to other curators, other researchers. It's hard to sort of say why she hasn't had the attention it, because you see it. In, I mean, she's even missing from books on women photographers, you know, like those books that unite different female photographers throughout history. You know, she won't be in there. She really is someone who hasn't had the attention or the scrutiny or the sort of scholarship that she deserves. So hopefully that will change after this. And, you know, through people like you talking about her work, it's just that case, isn't it, of trying to get 
it's discussion going. It's, yeah, exactly. exactly. It's just saying, you know what, this is really important. Let's discuss this. But I mean, Griselda Pollock, who's kind of the grand dame of feminist art, she wrote, which you again quoted, which is, why have our national art museums and institutions failed to collect, conserve and exhibit an artist of this order? I mean, you know, you're even getting people like Griselda Pollock, who is the authoritative voice on feminist art and, and, and art by women. And, you know, I think that in itself, you know, she's clearly known, but it's just the fact mm. that she's just not in these times. But I just want to come back to the fact that, you know, after she was in London in the 1980s, she then went back to Manchester. And this is why I find so interesting. And what I love about her work is the fact that I know this is, you know, this is a very kind of selfish thing to say, but looking back at this, when you see the breadth, and extensiveness of someone's career and you see what they did and you see what they came back to the fact that she returns to Manchester in the 90s what do you feel like she really captures here because this is almost worlds away from the Manchester that we saw in her early works no totally what's really interesting with that body of work because she was commissioned by the Lowry to make work to kind of basically contrasted and showed the differences that had emerged between the early work that she'd made. So it was around the millennium that she is commissioned by the Lowry. I mean, she'd been making work in around the North before that, sort of in the 90s and earlier. But they commission her and she goes back to these same streets in and around Manchester and Salford and she makes notes of one of them, which she said hardly recognised the areas. You know, so she talks about how different things are. She talks about the huge amount of building that's been done. Some of the things she noticed, I mean, I can read from her accounts. She said, you know, home computers, supermarkets, shops and stores, more cars, car parks, hotels. She talks about seeing less people playing she talks about children being more image conscious. I mean, it's really interesting how these observations of modernity and those pictures from that period are really, really beautiful. And there's one in particular that I love. I think it's from 2002 and it's a girl walking across a bridge. And it's a really striking image, actually, because it looks so contemporary. It looks like it could be a contemporary fashion image almost. And it's really nice, as you say, to see that sort of full arc in Shirley's work. But then there's also something kind of sad at the same time yeah. of her being back where she started in a way, yeah. particularly because she had slightly been pigeonholed into someone who had just made interesting work around a restless period of Northern life. So there's many emotions when you look at that work, which is what is so interesting about it as well. Totally. No, I think it's what you were saying earlier, how she captured so much in history. Mm. Like the fact like the rise in technology and the rise in these supermarkets that are in these different car parks, the dissolution of the high street as well. And the fact that, you know, what has this world become with the rise in technology? Like I'd be so fascinated to know what she would capture were she alive right now. Yeah, she was so sensitive to change. And I think, uh, and when I say sensitive yes. to change, I don't mean moralistically dismissive of it. I just mean she was sensitive to it in the sense of she noticed everything. Like the way that societal or technological changes, cultural shifts affect people's behavior, but then also the way that changes in behavior and customs bleed back into sort of societal change. So the mix of that and how you know, it sounds like it's such a cliche to be like, the political is personal, the personal is political, but that kind no, of thing, you know, she, she noticed yeah. that. To her, seeing the differences with how children were playing or how people were eating or how people were shopping, they showed things about culture, but then, of course, they were informed by socio-political, cultural things as well. And I think she's so good at that, why we do what we do and what that shapes and what are the ramifications of that. I mean, these are sort of loose ideas, but these are things that she is so shrewd at capturing but her pictures are also just really beautiful which is also really to find someone who can make such wonderful images that also do so much work the more you look at them you notice more and but yeah it is a really interesting few decades that she's making work so she's a fascinating person for that reason what do you think she's taught you 
I think she's taught me commitment. I think that was definitely something I found really inspiring with working on this project. Because I felt it was a kind of mad thing, actually, because I spent quite a lot of time sort of going through boxes and boxes and boxes of prints. And I was great. And I had help from a wonderful girl called Naomi who worked with me from Mac. And because sometimes if you've looked at like, you know, hundreds of prints a day, you sort of completely lose your ability to make an informed decision. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, is this yeah. a good image? <laughs> but because I spent so much time sort of in the archive, and as I said, you know, going through her personal correspondence, her own writing, I felt like I knew her really well. And you sort of started to be like, am I Shirley? I'm not, not Shirley. You find yourself sort of trying to second guess her and think like her. So it sort of went a bit mad probably at some stages. But I think I definitely felt very close to the work I think I definitely found the way she continued and pushed on despite the rewards being relatively small I think I found that very interesting and particularly in relation to you know what you said about how we rush through life which is something that Shirley thought and it definitely sort of encouraged me to think about the way that we can be quite impatient around things like acclaim and success and we presume that if it doesn't happen when you're young or if it doesn't happen in your lifetime, yeah. if you don't attain that sort of level quickly, then it's meaningless. And I think what Shirley's career and work shows is that it's not meaningless at all. And I think that's probably something that's really relevant to a lot of women artists who have made such significant contributions, but maybe never got to enjoy the sort of pat on the back that they should have had. So I definitely found that a very inspiring part of her work. Lou, thank you so much. So, like, this no, is just the best. I, I mean, I could honestly <laughs> talk to you for hours about this. But as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if Shirley Baker were, I don't know, Skyping with us today, or perhaps you were <laughs> back in Manchester or anywhere back in the day, what would you say to her? What would you ask her? God, it's so hard. I've been thinking what <laughs> I, I, well, the whole way through, I was like, what would I ask her if I could just call her oh, up? No. I don't know. I think I would just tell her thank you for making such. Yeah great work and I was lucky because she left behind all this amazing writing so I did feel like I had a degree of sort of correspondence with her even though I wasn't actually able to ask questions but she preempted a lot of my questions because she thought so much about her work so I would probably wouldn't ask her anything I'd probably just say thank you I would probably ask her like do you hate my book are you happy with this because <laughs> I really I would really no, hope she'd she would love like it. it she'd love I, it she'd be so, so. honoured I hope so I hope so she would thank you so much Lou for coming on the podcast today oh no thanks for having me I loved it Thank you all so much for listening to the 38th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Lou Stoppard on the photographer Shirley Baker. I am completely amazed by the fascinating life of Shirley and urge you all to check out her images as well as Lou's fantastic writings on her. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Amber Miller and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far I would be so grateful if you were to rate, review and subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 